Welcome to Musicians vs. the World, the podcast where we explore aspects of music and musician life that may not have been covered in music school. I am your host, Christine Smith, and I am honored to introduce my guest today, composer, conductor, and performer Adrian Dunn, whose musical work spans many genres and honors legends and key moments in the African diaspora. He was kind enough to speak with me a few days after the album release concert of his newest project, Emancipation Act II. We spoke about his career, his composition process, and the importance of preserving Black music in America. I want to give you a little bit of background about him. Adrian Dunn is an accomplished singer, songwriter, and producer. He holds a Bachelor of Music and a Master of Music degree in voice from the Music Conservatory at Roosevelt University, with additional musical studies in opera at the Sibelius Academy of Music in Finland. As an active professional singer, producer, and songwriter, Mr. Dunn has had the privilege of working with many gospel greats, as well as a soloist with numerous symphony and opera productions across the nation. Adrian is the founder of the Adrian Dunn Singers and Rise Orchestra, an all-black Chicago-based professional orchestra and vocal ensemble. He's a prodigious composer whose works include The 42 Project, the Black Messiah, and most recently, Emancipation and Emancipation Act II, centered around Black lives in 21st century America. I hope that you enjoy my conversation with composer, conductor, and performer, Adrian Dunn. Adrian, thank you so much for being here, and welcome to Musicians Versus the World. Thank you so much. really appreciate you having me today. I appreciate you coming. I'm sure you're exhausted. You just had a fantastic concert this past weekend. Do you want to tell me a little bit about that? Sure. Um, we just had the album release here in Los Angeles uh, at Zipper Concert Hall um, at the Colburn School this past Saturday. I'm at 7 o'clock p.m. featuring the Adrian Dunn Singers in the Rise Orchestra in my new album release, Emancipation, which are all spirituals, gospel, hip-hop, um, all genres of Black music from the United States, uh, original compositions by myself for chorus and orchestra. And um, I'm really excited about it. Really excited about it. So this is Emancipation 2, correct? There was a first part before. Yeah, so Act 1 came out in the fall online, um, available everywhere. Those are the gospel and jazz and kind of hip-hop um, pieces from Emancipation. Um, mm -hmm. Act 2 that just came out are the orchestral overtures as well as the spiritual arrangements, um, more of the acoustic uh, music that just came out for Black History. Wow. That must have been a huge undertaking. Yeah. Because you composed it and you directed and sang in there. and Yeah, so I'm kind of unique that way. <laughs> I, I'm a conductor, but I also sing and I perform in the concerts in my work. Um, I think it's a really important thing and something that, you know, as I was growing up, particularly my first exposure to music was through the Black church. And, and many of my mentors there were choir directors. They played instruments. They they sang. They were mentors. They were teachers. Yeah. You know, um, they kind of did so many things. And so for me, in trying to preserve the legacy of Black music in America, I think that it's so important that we not just um, talk about the actual compositions themselves, but we really look and dive into the performance aesthetic and all of the things that it takes to make the music honest and true, for sure. Oh, I like that. I want to hear about your history, but can you first tell me about this aesthetic? Kind of expand on that. 
Yeah, so I think oftentimes in Western Eurocentric music, classical music, uh, art music, if you will, we're used to coming in a concert hall and being very quiet. We're used Mm -hmm. to performers and choral music standing still or having very little movement and or facial expressions. There's certain things that I feel like as a Black artist growing up in America, particularly in the church, that the things about Black art aesthetics that often are left behind when we talk about art music uh, in concert halls or opera houses or those types of venues, if you will. Um, And for me, I think it's really important that we are honest and true in terms of our performance aesthetic and making sure that we invite and welcome the audience into the work that we are doing and invite them to be participants and making the music and being a part of what it is that we do. So folks clap, they can dance, you can do whatever you want to do at my shows, okay? You can scream, <laughs> you whatever you want to do. Um, but I think that that is the, the, the type of environment and atmosphere that makes um, so much of a call and response, so much of all of right. those, those really foundational principles of Black music from the United States really stick and for the audience to really get it. How does the audience react to something like that? Because if they're regular, you know, concert goers for classical music, that's a completely different experience for them. What's their reactions to that? So Saturday's concert was electric. In the 21st century, I think people are looking for new experiences. You know, if I'm going to be completely honest, I feel like, you know, as a classically trained opera singer and have worked for many uh, large uh, organizations, in classical music, you can hear a million Beethoven nines. You can hear a million... Carmina Baranas, you can hear a million Britain War Requiems and Verdi Requiem and Mozart Requiems, and kind of you can hear them in rotation just over right. the years. And what's mm-hmm. unfortunate about that, I think that now um, as audiences are growing older, as millennials are getting older, as <laughs> as that, that generational yeah. shift is happening, I think audiences are looking for something else. I think audiences mm-hmm. are, are wanting to see the expansion of the canon and and in some ways to really see um, us really feature the music of America. And as far as I'm concerned, that absolutely must include Black folks. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And I like the way that you combine so many different genres. You've got the gospel and the hip hop and classical and opera all in one performance. And yeah. it's it is a completely different experience. How do you decide when you're composing? How do you decide, okay, this is going to be more of a hip-hop influence and this is going to be a bit more R&B? What's your composing process? So my process is very internal. I have a, a number of friends that are, that are uh, you know, classically trained composers as in went to school to compose, right. right? I went to school to perform. And what was weird is I had a lot of teachers that said, hey, you know, you wouldn't be a great composer. You know, you should really be, you're an amazing singer. You know, why would you, you know, want to... Don't you love it when the teachers put you in this, you're in this lane, you're in this box, you're in this category? Yeah, there's a lot of that. And I went to conservatory too. So I think I also made it maybe a little worse. Um, Uh And I really feel like it's so important that for me as a composer to follow the things that I know work for me and the things Mm -hmm. that I know that I want to say as an artist, because... If it's something that's inside of me that I want to say, I know that that is for me has God inspiration, um, as in it's something bigger than than me that needs to come out of me that I need to share with the world. And so for me, you know, the genre itself 
really is related upon the inspiration and how I feel inspired in that moment and what I feel like is the best modality to tell that story, right? Or Mm -hmm. to get that musical idea out to the world. And I think that those modalities are are oftentimes like brushes or different paint colors, you know, that a visual artist might use. You use a little red and a little green, and sometimes you can mix it up and get a whole new color. Uh-huh. And I think oftentimes with the work that I do, we get lots of new colors <laughs> because as opposed <laughs> to, I think in some other fusion work, we see the lines, uh, my brother says often with my music, they're less lines and you see more, they're more like threads that are interwoven. Um, That's an excellent way of putting that. Yeah. And I think we've all seen uh, multi-genre works that don't fuse well, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like they, yeah. they're they there, we see, but they don't really do this. And I think that that's really kind of my, it's my jam. It's my thing mm-hmm. for sure. I could get a sense of that inspiration that you're talking about when I was listening to Black Messiah. Mm-hmm. It was I could I could hear where you're coming from, and I'm a fan of the original Messiah, and I could hear some of the same how that inspired it, but there was so much more, yeah. and it was such a different experience. And for me, having grown up listening to Handel, listening to your version of it was really a beautiful experience. It thank was, you. so yeah, thank you for writing that. I just but I could see what you're talking about, and there were so many different styles in that album, mm-hmm. but they were interweaved. Very naturally, yeah. I think. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's one of my favorites. <laughs> well, you're very prodigious. I mean, just thinking about all of the different things that you have done in the past, even just three years with Emancipation, Emancipation 2, Black Messiah, how do you have time to do all of this? I don't really know. Uh, most of the time, <laughs> I, I question myself, how do I have time? Um, and and the, it's challenging, but I will say, you know, in the last year, I feel extremely blessed as a composer and as a performer that people want to hear my music (laughs) and that my music is being done. And that in March of last year, um, I did the premiere of an opera that I wrote commissioned from the University of Utah on the life of Jackie Mm -hmm. Robinson called The 42 Project. And in the 42 Project, while I was still composing Emancipation and preparing for that, like it, it was, it, you know, we had the multi-projects is when things kind of go like, wow. oh, wait, how, how much time do I need to write this and do that? But, you know, it always seems to work out, uh, which is really great. And I have a spectacular group of singers in my orchestra and my, my artistic support team my music director and, you know, so many people, my concert master and my orchestra and, you know, all of the people who are kind of the the musical architects that help make my work possible. And so I also have to shout shout out to the Adrian Dunn singers, shout out to Rise Orchestra in Chicago, which are Chicago's only all black professional orchestra, as well as all black professional vocal ensemble as well. And so I'm really, really happy about that. And and, and last season, we did our Chicago Symphony debut with Marin Alsop um, at Ravinia, where I composed, was commissioned by CSO to compose um, a new arrangement of Going Home from the Dvorak New World Symphony um, with the Chicago Symphony. And so in thinking about like these really unique projects that have come my way, I feel really honored. And I also feel really, um, as I said, really blessed to make world-class music with people who with people who love me and that I love them. And so I, I want to always just throw that out there because, you know, when you're in, in college or conservatory, you can't really see what's beyond school. Right. 
you don't know what's next exactly. But as I got into the field, I was like, there were things in classical music. I was like, hey, I don't really like this. I don't really want to be a part of a, a lot of this, right? Full time, all the time. So I, I can either complain about it or I can create something new. Right. And in creating something new, I think I've, I've been blessed to recognize that everyone doesn't get to make music with people that love right. them and that they love. And so I feel really blessed about that. I've watched some of your performances and you can tell there's a real connection between you and the people that are working with you. Absolutely. It's a beautiful thing. And it comes through the music as well. Now, can we back up a little bit? Can we go back and see how did you get started as a classical vocalist? Where's, where is this all coming from? Yeah, I started, I grew up in this little black church called Starlight Baptist Church in Cleveland, Ohio, which is where I grew up. I grew up in Cleveland Heights, Ohio. And there I began, you know, just doing church stuff. And then in middle school, I had a choir director that gave us the Vivaldi Gloria. And I was like, I really hate this. Why do we have to sing this? Like, I don't really understand. (laughs) But after hating it for like six months, you know, we we won this competition with it. And I was like, wow. And that just kind of kept going. And I got to high school. I was in the acapella choir. I was in the gospel choir. And I started studying voice and piano. Uh, my mom put me in lessons. Um, I was a part of the Allstate Choir. And it was like, you know, I have mentors who were like, you're really good. You know, you should really hone in on this. And then I got a full scholarship to Interlochen. Um, and my time at Interlochen in the summer really kind of focused me on college conservatory education, applied at a bunch of schools. Um, and I decided I was either going to L.A., New York or Chicago. And Chicago was kind of close, but not far from home, from Cleveland. And so I I went there to uh, the conservatory at Roosevelt University. Um, And then in my last year, I finished my undergrad studies at the Sibelius Academy of Music in Helsinki. And then Mm. I came back to the United States and did my master's also at Roosevelt in in opera and vocal performance um, and also continued to study conducting at that time um, and kind of you know, got my feet wet in composition in undergrad uh, with Hopra, which is the uh, hip hop opera that I wrote when I was 19 or 20, trying to talk about my high school experience of losing eight friends during high school um, to either different forms of violence and really seeking to preserve their stories and who they were uh, and making sure that they had space. And I think opera and theater allows us to do that because, it, of course, it allows us to suspend time and space. And so I was just growing and 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 going and and that's kind of how I got to the classical <laughs> to the classical side of things. And then you just kind of took it and ran with it in your own direction. Yeah, I think um my first professional jobs was with the Chicago Symphony Chorus mm-hmm. and then with the Grant Park Symphony Chorus in Chicago I sang the opening season of Millennium Park which was spectacular, mm. you know, um and and also getting to work with so many world-class conductors in Cleveland as a kid. I mean, we were working with Doc Nanyi. We were working with Franz Vesle-Mose. We yeah. were working with Pierre Boulez. You know, all of the assistant conductors conducted the youth orchestra, right? So we had this exposure to so many conductors and then on into college working with uh, Jane Glover and Eschenbach and Daniel Barenboim and so many of James Conlin, Marin Alsop, you know, and thinking about how that impacted my life. And even in those union core situations, understanding that there was still so much about it that that I wanted to change or things that I wanted to, to do or how I wanted to be and operate that really gave me the motivation to launch out on my own and to try to create something truly unique and different. Well, what are some of the things that you wanted to change? So I think that the 
industry, right? Not the music, right? Not the right. music, the industry, right? Is what mm-hmm. I'm talking about, which is how things go, you know, hiring practices, um, auditioning practices, um, you know, repertoire, yeah. right? Why are these the only 20 pieces that we do in rotation? And for a lot of big, you know, orchestra choruses, they don't do a lot of just traditional choral repertoire. It's mostly orchestral repertoire, right? right. And so mm-hmm. in thinking about that and why do orchestras still only program these things? Why do we look over so many American composers? Why right. is it that we're not expanding that conversation. And I think the way that artists are treated, you know, all all of those things, you know, were really a part of why I wanted to do something different and create something unique and special that I really Mm -hmm. felt like the world had not seen. And given my background of studying so many HBCU college choir conductors and composers and Moses Hogan and Nathan Carter and Roland Carter, um, Rosephanie Powell, you know, Margaret Bonds, you know, so many people mm-hmm. that I never learned about that if I did not have Black classical mentors, I wouldn't even, I, I never heard of these people in a music history class, right? True, yeah. And so I right. thought, you know, how can I complain about it if I'm not going to do anything about it? And so this is what I felt like needed to be done. And I'm really grateful that I stuck with it. <laughs> yeah. You know, through the through yeah. the hard times uh, to, to get to where I am today. For unto us a son is given. For unto us a child is born. There was something that you said at your premiere of the Jackie Robinson Opera at the University of Utah. When you got up there, you spoke to the audience a little bit, and you said that Jackie Robinson is a, is a legend and you love him. But as a black man in classical music, mm-hmm. you see a connection with him on a different level. Yes. Would you mind talking a little bit about that? Sure. I think Jackie Robinson, when I saw the the Hollywood film mm-hmm. with uh, Chadwick Boseman and uh, I think Harrison Ford, mm-hmm. I felt like, wow, you know, and I, at the time I didn't know much about Jackie's story. But as I began right. to work on the opera, I did tons of research And in my research, I discovered that a lot of the things in that story was not exactly how I felt like Jackie really felt or exactly where he was in his life. His life is so rich, you know, and so Mm -hmm. varied. And it was so many layers of of going to to the army and being in the service to being a Black student at UCLA at that time, right? Right. Um, In California and those narratives about being a pro athlete in multiple areas. I mean, he was like a freak of nature, you know? Um, And as well (laughs) as his brother going to the Olympics and like winning, you know, like the whole story is incredible. And I think as I discovered so much about what was going on in the United States in terms of civil rights and the, mm-hmm. the death threats and all of the things that happened to his family and what he had to be. And for this man to die at 53 as being a world-class athlete, I had to ask myself a question, how could this be? And what was happening in his life? What were the things that were happening internally that would not allow him to, um, to be in such poor health at the end of his life? And 
There's been many dissertations and many, so many uh, books about Jackie and his life. And for me, I wanted to, in the opera, is to talk about Jackie the man. I wanted to talk about Jackie the civil rights hero. I want to talk about Jackie the father. I want to talk about Jackie the man who was was living kind of in this this big. I don't want to say prison. That's that's a a, a, a a dramatic term, but I think in some ways, like a fishbowl. Yeah, it was was a was he was he was living under unspeakable pressure, right? Okay. And I think the expectations, as well as the idea that racism is what killed him, as as one uh, scholar would argue in their their paper, I I tend to agree. I tend to agree that the ideas of racism at that time is enough to drive anybody crazy today. But thinking about what that could have been some 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, I can't even put into words, you know, what his story was and the things that he had to live in. So I'm attempting to say in the 42 Project, who was Jackie? Who was he? Not who was he as a Brooklyn Dodger or who was he as, you know, a Branch Ricky. Not, not all of that, but who was the man? You know, what did he stand for? What did he believe? And I see so many parallels in terms of my life as a Black opera singer and many of the reasons why I decided to leave that space and to go create my own other spaces because there's certain things that you just can't talk about in the business. There's certain things that you mm-hmm. just can't give voice to and still succeed in that that structure, if Makes you sense. will. Um, and so, and that's that's pretty much what I meant in terms of there's so many parallels uh, between that and the and the opera game for sure. Isn't that the most beautiful thing about music, though? You can make that connection between people living decades apart. Absolutely. And, and you can just feel just such, oh, the human connection of music is just amazing. It's incredible. Yes. So I'm glad that that project was able to to give that to you. What were the students like? What was it like to work with them as they were doing this project with you? It's great. I mean, I think that, you know, again, so much of the music education structure has omitted a lot of the contributions of African-Americans. And so I think now we're in a place where people are going, whoa, 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 like there's all of this other stuff that I just never knew about. Like, you know, I think that I am kind of in that that line, you know, of, of new and innovative work that are like out in the world today. And my contemporaries, people like Damian Jeter and Joel Thompson and Jesse Montgomery and Carlos Simon and Marcus Norris. So many of us, I think are really, you know, in a place right now where people are doing our work and, and it's really great. And so I think the students are always just refreshed to to see a new voice and to do yeah. something different. And they were super excited about it. They had a great time. Yeah, you could tell they were having fun when you watched the video. Yeah. They're having a good time with it. And I think all of us, even us old timers like myself, we're excited to learn about new things because we have learned about the same composers. We know them inside and out. And to have something new, it's just like Christmas. It's so exciting. And just kind of see where music is going and kind of the future of where music is going is very, very, very exciting. Absolutely. Now, you are also an activist, and I would love to talk a little bit about some of the things that you are doing, some of the programs that you're doing. One of them is your orchestra, and then also this whole movement of Black Music Matters. Can you explain this a little bit? Sure. 
Black Music Matters is something that started uh, probably about three, four years ago. And we we did a first summit of bringing Black artists of all different genres together to really talk about the preservation of Black music in America. And what I mean is, is that, you know, it's more than just advocating for Black composers' work to be done or Black artists to be hired, you know, et cetera. It's actually that and more, right? It's really similar mm-hmm. to, I think, of the 1619 Project in a lot of ways, that the 1619 Project has really shaped the way that we've had conversations around race and America really reconciling our history, right, mm-hmm. on well, a more honest terms, right? <laughs> and I think, though, we, we, we know that there's space to, to have those conversations. I think we've learned over the past four years that that isn't always true that it's not always a safe space to speak that truth to power around the history of uh, slavery and the history of Black folks in America. And so Black Music Matters for me is really about the push and the effort to preserve Black music in America. What does it mean to preserve the spiritual? What does it mean to preserve the legacy of concert music written by Black composers? How do we do that in a real practical term? How do we make those changes? And what are ways that the community and the public and folks of all races can support that work, right? And so for me, the Rise Orchestra is an all-Black orchestra. um, And regardless of your age, and if you're in any conservatory or, or college program, you automatically have admission into that orchestra in the city of Chicago. Mm. Also, those orchestra players do receive compensation when they play, right? And that's a a huge thing. Also, Mm -hmm. we only do Black living composers in that orchestra um, as well. So, and I think that those are important cliff notes, but, you know, really important things to to know. Um, Adrian Dunn, singers, similarly, primarily does my work, which is great. <laughs> oh, right. But, uh, we also do a lot of contract work um, and things. We also finished um, our first major film, Haunt for Jesus, starring Sterling K. Brown and Regina Hall this oh, last Congratulations. Fall. Thank you so much. It went to Sundance and it won there. And we're super excited about that film. You can catch it anywhere on Peacock or anywhere where you, you stream. But, you know, again, expanding the conversation. Um, and again, that film used all, all Black players. And we recorded that on the south side of Chicago at 87th and Stony Island at a Black studio, right? And thinking about the ways that economics also impact the conversation around Black music and what music is, gets heard, what music gets performed, mm-hmm. and what music does not get performed. So much of that is is not just talking about, hey, we need more Black performers on the stage. No, we need more executives. We need more people in administration. We need to really expand the conversation about streaming and royalties and rights and licensing and all of the other things that we generally don't talk about in music school. We just talk about the art and who's in front of us. We don't talk about where the funding comes from, who's giving the funding, who are the donors, what are grants, where do they come from, how many kinds of grants there are, what companies are favored in the conversations about yeah. getting those funds, right? So just yeah, don't get me started on all yeah, that. No, that yeah, that's the whole can... thing, right? And so I think <laughs> Black Music Matters is attempting to at least scratch the surface, uh, surface in that conversation and get us thinking about these things for sure. Yeah. Now you were saying it doesn't matter what race or you know where you come from. How does someone from all different races, but maybe is not Black, how do they support this sort of idea? Yeah. So I think, um, for example, I'm always saying if you're a music teacher, 
expand the conversation about who you're programming. You know, there are tons and tons of resources now, websites and of large databases of black and brown composers. Who are you programming? The other thing is I say all the time in our shows, who are you listening to? So if there's anyone listening right now, like Emancipation Act 2 is available everywhere, Spotify, Apple Music, wherever you get music, YouTube, add me as an artist. You know, when you add someone as an artist, you get a little ping every time they release a new a new project. You get a little ping sometimes every time they have a show that's in your area sometimes as well. Those are, are really simple ways. Sometimes we think about these big, huge things, but there are sometimes these really simple things like sharing things on Facebook and social media about really initiating and having those conversations with other colleagues um, and helping them to learn about other resources. And for me, at my website, adriandunn.com, you can also get Black Music Matters t-shirts, hoodies, ball caps, you know, things like that, tote bags for teachers and folks um, to continue to expand that conversation and to at least bring the conversation to the forefront about how many Black composers do you know? How many Black artists do you know? Who are the people who you may know and ways that you can support um, that will help move that conversation forward? What is your vision like for the future when it comes to classical music or just music in general? Because you kind of span all genres. What's your What's your vision for a world where Black music matters? My vision is a space where we eventually get to a place where we are able to acknowledge that Black music is really just American music. Um, and as I often say in my lectures, that Black folks are the authors of American music. When we think about Tin Pan Alley and Broadway, when we think about George Gershwin now, not then, but now, <laughs> and we think <laughs> about uh, Porgy and Bess, when we think about these right. pieces and, and how some of them are, we can see as problematic today. But that whole legacy, when we really dive in and, and, and go a bit deeper, that the truth will, as the Bible sometimes says, will make you free. And I truly believe that. I truly believe that no one has to worry or be afraid of what the truth is, because one way or another, we've been living in it all of this time, whether we are, have been aware or present to it or not. And so I, my vision is that we live in a space where we won't say, oh my gosh, I've never seen a Black conductor or a Black opera singer or a Black orchestra or a Black group of singers singing right. this kind of music. We say, yes, I've seen that before. And yes, I've seen a Latino group and I've seen an Asian group of folks. I've seen, you know, what, and it's not like, oh my gosh, like this is, this is new, this is whatever, but it's all us. It's all right. America's contributions to the world. And I think it's so important that moving forward, that we're able to voice that and to say that these are Black compositions that are a part of the American story. And it's nothing to be ashamed of, and it's all to be celebrated, and that we would treat all music, including Black music, on the same level as we treat European art music. That's a beautiful answer. Thank you. I love that answer. Yeah. Adrian, I have, I have so enjoyed speaking with you today. One last question. Do you have any advice for future musicians, anyone that is wanting to be a musician professionally, what advice would you give them? My, my best advice is don't give up. If there's something that is within you that you feel like you have to do this, because I feel like most musicians 
feel like they have to do it. Hopefully no right. one's just volunteering. <laughs> That's not the career for you. <laughs> <laughs> there, there's some other lanes you can go. But if you are someone who's committed the time you put in your 10,000 hours, you're on your way to your 10,000 hours to be that expert. Just remember that it may not always look great, but you've got to stick to the things that matter and mean the most to us. I've been really moved by the the MLK quote, you know, say we die the day that we stop caring about the things that matter to us the most. And I think as artists, as musicians in America, we can just get so consumed with life and bills and this and that, that we forget the things that bring us joy and the things that bring us happiness and peace and gratitude and oftentimes the things that money cannot buy. And so my best advice to young musicians is don't stop, don't give up, stay encouraged, stay moving towards that goal. You will get better. There is nothing impossible. You will find your audience. You will find your tribe. They are there and you are absolutely worthy and enough. Thank you so much, Adrian Dunn. Thank you so much for being here. I so appreciate you coming and talking with me today. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us today on the Musicians vs. the World podcast in our discussion with composer, conductor, and performer, Adrian Dunn. If you want to learn more about Adrian and the Black Music Matters movement, you can find out more on his website, adriandunn.com. His albums can be found on all music streaming services, including Apple Music, Spotify, Deezer, and Pandora. And you can catch a rebroadcast of his PBS Emancipation special, Live from the Harris Theater, Adrian Dunn's Emancipation, on Saturday, February 18th, and Sunday, February 19th, on WTTW. Or you can watch the entire episode on the WTTW website. I'll have links to all of this in our show notes on our website, frostedlens.com slash musicians versus the world. Throughout this episode, you've heard excerpts from Jericho from Emancipation Act Two, His Name is Wonderful from The Black Messiah, and Bells from Redemption. These pieces were composed by Adrian Dunn and performed by the Adrian Dunn Singers and Rise Orchestra under Adrian's direction. All music was shared here with permission. If you know of anyone that may be interested in today's conversation, please share this episode with them. And if you have a minute, leave us a nice review wherever you listen to podcasts so that others can find us as well. Musicians vs. the World is a production of Frosted Lens Entertainment in conjunction with Smith Sound Music. It is hosted and edited by me, Christine Smith, and our producer today is Russ Wilkes. If you have enjoyed today's podcast, please be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform so you don't miss out on any future conversations. If you have any questions for us, topics you'd like to hear about, or any helpful advice for other musicians that you'd like to share, be sure to reach out on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook, or send us an email at info at Thanks so much, and have a great day. Oh, 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 oh,